Hi, I'm Boya Bruglan, and you're listening to Sorry Parker. And welcome to Sorry Partner, a weekly podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with Norwegian champion Boya Brogelan about getting in the mood for bridge and the imperative to do what's right, as well as hear his top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, Jocelyn. Hi, Catherine. How are you? <laughs> well, that's funny. You should ask. I, I'm not even going to ask how you are because I'm still smarting from possibly the worst game we've ever had in our playing history. 37% third last, I believe, in the whole field. Am I right? You are correct. The thing is, I think it's a miracle that we got 37% given that the first I don't know how many boards were all like under 10%. So, oh no, no, actually, now I'm looking at it. It wasn't so, so bad. They were all in the teens, except for, <laughs> except for two of them were under 10%. Oh my God. But we, so we, we really, we pulled it out. No, I mean, a lot of it was my fault and I'm so, oh, and so my, sorry. No, no, no. Terrible. It was a joint effort. And I do recall messaging you at one point saying that I wondered if we would break 10%. So I'm proud of us. I think we, we yes. exceeded our expectation. Absolutely. Well, I was actually thinking in the middle, like, what would happen if we just left? <laughs> like, what would, what would happen? It would probably screw everybody up. Yeah. And so I didn't suggest it, but man, I was tempted. It was just, it felt so pathetic. But, you know, we got to pick ourselves up. It's such a humbling game. Oh my God. One minute you're feeling so good about, I don't know, some particular bid that you made that nobody else made and it got you a top. And then the next minute you get a 37% with like the first six boards. I know. All being... Under 20%. Yeah, it kills you. Two of them being under 10%. I mean, <laughs> oh my God. That I have never, never seen. Never no, seen. Well, I'm going to take comfort in our teacher's advice that it's a strategy game and it's you have to take the long <laughs> view. And in this case, we'll be taking the very, very, very long view. Yes, it may be long enough that when we're Mel Colchamiro's age, we'll be able to crow about our 80% games comprising of Several versions of 37% games. <laughs> right. Like an additive property, you know, during the course of one day of playing, you know, three sessions for a combined combined total of something like 80. I mean, it was insane. But yeah, we're just yes, like yes. Mel. Ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> it was very sad. You know, this leads me to our mailbag because we have a letter from Sarah in New York and she hasn't said anything about comfort eating, but I'm going to put it in that category given how sad I'm feeling about our recent game. So would you like me to read it to you? Absolutely. I am extremely familiar with the concept. Every time I have a bad board, I run to the candy table and get <laughs> a Reese's Pieces or an Oreo cookie or something. Yes. Well, Jocelyn, this may be the end of that streak for you. Uh-oh. Here we go. 
A couple of years ago, I spent an afternoon at my local bridge club. The food was served before play began and was always the same. Assorted cold cuts, mixed green salad, coleslaw or potato salad. Around the fifth or sixth round of play, they would put out freshly diced fruit salad, which was very popular. Depending on where you were in the round, you might get to it before it was all gone. One day, I was there early enough to find only one person in front of me. The man helped himself to some grapes and pineapple and then promptly sneezed into the bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I quickly informed the club owner who removed the bowl back to the kitchen, as they would. Moments later, another bowl of fruit was put out. I went to serve myself some, assuming it was a fresh bowl of fruit, but the fruit was all slightly watery, which was when I realized I had just rinsed it under the tap and served it again. Oh, needless to say, I was no longer interested in dessert. So Oreo cookie Reese's pieces, at least I guess the the Reese's are wrapped up. They're all wrapped and the Oreos are individually wrapped. Everything is a separately wrapped item. Yes. And I try to stay away from it, but I'm not very successful. And it's especially true, like, if someone does something really great against us and I'm feeling really sorry for myself, that's exactly when I make a beeline (laughs) for that snack table and wallow in the Reese's peanut butter cups or the Oreo cookies. Well, maybe we should have a joint wallow now and go and help ourselves to a cookie somewhere and or or some chocolate and pick ourselves up or some alcohol, a cocktail. (laughs) I mean, I've always thought it would be so wonderful if if they brought along a bar, a bar cart during the (laughs) play and, and mixed you a nice martini while you were playing. It would be that would be really nice. Um, it would certainly soften the blow. It would soften the blow. Yes. There's lots of things that clubs could do to have better amenities. You know, obviously the fruit salad is a real problem, but there's so many nice things they could do in terms of upgrading the food and the coffee. And I've always thought it would be really nice if they would bring in people to give you massages, you know, shoulder massages or nail care while you're sitting at the table. You could just extend your foot out to have some nice pedicure or even possibly a manicure. I'm not sure, but it just seems like these are the sorts of things that if clubs were really interested in in improving the player experience they would be (laughs) looking into into doing more of these types of things don't you think? right well if our ambitions as card shark octogenarians go awry maybe (laughs) this is another business opportunity for us we could um (laughs) we could start a cottage industry yes personal hygiene standards aside i'm sure no one would mind seeing people's feet extended (laughs) oh my god there is a guy there is a guy i have seen at the club who always is in bare feet. There's some people who just love being barefoot, you know, but I mean, really? Has he got awful toes? I mean, that's really the issue. I don't look. I don't look. <laughs> I don't look. But it's just a, yeah, that one is a bit strange. So I I, I get that, that it, that could be a problem. So you'd have to have a certain quality of of foot appearance, a certain level of attractiveness for your feet before, you know, you'd be allowed to get the the nail care at the bridge club, perhaps. Yeah. Or or we could arrive with some kind of tent situation. Tenting. Yes. Yes. You would tent the area so that no one would have to see the feet. I like that idea. 
If you've got any crazy ideas about how to improve the experience at the Bridge Club, or really any fun story about Bridge, please send it in to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or leave us a voice message at www.speakpipe.com slash sorrypartnerpodcast. The link is also in the show notes. Coming up next, our interview with Boya Brogeland. Boya Brogeland is a Norwegian grandmaster, a European grandmaster, and a world grandmaster. But he is perhaps best known for spearheading a campaign against cheating in bridge that led to the exposure of wrongdoing by several top pairs. For his role in this campaign, Brogeland was named the 2015 Personality of the Year by the International Bridge Press Association, and in 2016, he was awarded the Sidney H. Lazard Jr. Sportsmanship Award by the ACBL. We began by asking him about his grandparents, who taught him to play. Oh, they were very nice. It gives me the chills there, what you just mentioned. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents when, when I was young. So I went to them as often as I could during the weekends, and they liked to play all sorts of games. They weren't real bridge players, I would say, but they introduced me for bridge, and we actually played three-handed bridge most of the time because we were missing a fourth. So that was only when more family members, maybe on the Sundays when we had dinners and stuff, we could play four-handed. But, but normally on the Saturday when I stayed over, we would play three-handed bridge. But that taught me a lot, actually, because it's playing three-handed bridge is a great way to, to learn the game in a way of looking at your hand and also knowing what dummy it has. We were kind of fighting over the dummy, so we knew what dummy it had, and we just had to bid him up so everybody could bid for the dummy and bid it up to the level. So that taught me a lot for how high you would bid, like you could compare, you could see the fits, you, you knew how many points were in dummy, and you just had to bid him up as, as high as you could. So, so that, that taught me a lot. I, I got so excited just from the, just learning, learning, yes, that I tried to be as much as I could with my, with my grandparents. And also I remember the first time I played in the local club was with my grandfather. And I'm not sure if I remember this rightly, but I think we won. <laughs> so it's a, it's a good number. And so he took you along to the local club. What was the local club like? The local club was was very nice. I, we played there on the second floor, like in in a bank, the second second floor of the bank we started, I remember. Uh, I think maybe there was some sort of like six, seven, eight, nine tables there. I would think on, on, on a normal uh, th- Thursday were the day that we, we played. And I was very, what, what I was lucky with in, in, in that club was that I, I got to play with actually the, the best player at the club. So from I was 14 years old, I played with the best player in the club. He was my math teacher and he was also my football coach. And he saw my talent, I think, from one when I played in the club. He, he knew that I had talent and he said to his regular partner, he said, I think I should maybe try and play with this, with this boy because he, I think he can, he can be good at, at some point. So, so I was very lucky that that way. And, and he taught me a lot. So if I hadn't been so lucky. I, I'm not sure how, how far I would have come with Bridge, but I think that's from the 14 to 19, like five years, playing with a really, really, I was a top-class player. Taught me a lot of system, taught me a lot of how to think about the game. And every night after the club uh, game, he drove me home in his Ford, like a small Ford, Ford uh, Escort, I think, called the small one. We sat outside our house and went through all the hats. And I thought that was, it was amazing for me to see like how he can remember every card from every hand. Like I thought I would never be that good. I would never be. 
So, but little by little, I, I saw for myself, it is just becomes like a natural thing. If you played a lot of bridge and you talk about a lot of bridge and you visualize bridge hands, after a while, you, you just, you just see it. You don't need really to, to use much energy to remember it. It's just there, like a picture you've seen and you're wondering. Were there other kids your age playing at the club when you were uh, first coming to the club? Not really. Uh, but I played with uh, my cousin. He was uh, yeah, almost four years older than me. So, so he was still young. I was, I was 12 and he was 16, I think, when we started out. But no, that we, we were really the only ones there. But I, I, I taught some of my friends how to play also. But they, did, they, was, they were maybe a few times in the club, but they were not regulars. In your social circle, do you tend to socialize mostly with other bridge players or, or not? I actually have quite a few close bridge friends here where, where I live in, in Flekkefjord. But I would say if you go back, no, I, I have not had that many bridge friends. But after studying and I moved back again, I took up the, th- the thread again with, with people that I knew through bridge at some point that weren't close friends or anything, that I actually become close friends the last 10, 15 years. So it's, it's di- divided in a way. It's, it's, it's split. It's nothing that like I have lots of rich friends or, or the other way around. I think it comes a lot from hobbies. I have, we have friends that we just played football together for like, since I moved back to Fleckenfield 15 years ago. I think that's quite a bit of your interest because of rich is a mutual interest. You have rich friends and you also have friends for other interests that you, that you have. And when you are hanging out with your bridge friends, are you only talking about bridge or do you find yourself uh, able to talk about something else? Well, when you go to tournaments, I can promise you it's, it's almost all bridge. Like you play the hand and when you go to dinner, you dissect every hand. Right? And I always found that like so much fun. So I remember when I started playing in the USA, I played on Rita Schubert's team. And back in those days, you didn't have hand records, especially when you played. You still don't have that, but you... For quite a few matches, you didn't have had records when you played in team games. So we had some of like Marshall Lewis that was taking notes on every head that was played. So he brought this to the dinners and he had made a photocopy of it and handed out to, to all the players. So we went through every head and every card that was played. And that enough for those like two and a half hours with dinner, we were just rushing back, back to the, to the playing area and play that for, yeah, four hours. And then to, to, to read us, to read a suite afterwards. They had to get a little bit of food, but mainly then for another round with hand records then until like one, two o'clock in the, in the, in the morning. I must say, I'm looking back at those times. I thought it was great. It was just all, all bridge. So, but of course, when, when you don't play bridge, you might talk about a hand or something, but then I guess just mostly normal stuff. But you always have a fallback. That's a nice thing. If you, if you don't have anything more to talk about, you can always bring up a hand or bring up something, uh, bridge related. I was wondering if there was any board this week that stood out as the best board of the week. Well, I played in the league in Norway this weekend and I picked up this hat with 25 uh, high cards. Balanced hand, 25 high cards, five card spades. And my thinking is, okay, you open two clubs. That's what, what most people would do. But we have this convention with a multi where we have either a week two in a major or a strong balanced hand. So I thought, okay, it fits this. This is a 24 plus at a balanced hand, which actually fits this hand pretty well. So I thought off the pass on my right, I decided, okay, I opened two diamonds, 24 plus balanced hand. And we played this with screens. It was the, I played for uh, my, my local club, Plekifu, where I come from. I played in the second division in Norway. So I pushed the tray over 
And so he goes, pass on my right, I open two diamonds, and the trade comes back, pass from my left to the opponent, and pass from par. <gasps> and like, I'm, what's happening? I have my part forgotten or convention here. So I was like, wow, this is what's happening. And normally <laughs> now when it passes, you will also, I guess, have long diamonds. So in diamonds, I had ace, king, 10, and I had ace, king, jack, fifth, and spades. So it seemed like we had a lot of tricks on this hand. But I'm really, really lucky. So the guy that opened would pass, he has the 10 high cards that's left in the deck. So my left-handed opponent actually has zero high cards, and my right-handed opponent has 10 high cards. So he balances with a double. <laughs> so now, what to do? So I'm thinking, what, what can I do? I, I, if I just bid two spades, I wasn't sure maybe my opponent still thinks it's, it's just a weak hand with spades. So I thought, okay, what to do? But I decided to redouble, and I hopefully the bottom will wake up. And it goes, redouble... And it goes two hearts on the left, pass, pass to me. And now I guess maybe I should just bid two spades because now I guess after the redouble of two spades, partner ought to know that this is the strong hand with, with 24 plus heart. But I'm a little bit, because of all, all the things that are happening, I'm a little bit all over the place. So I think I just have to think of uh, like a final contract here. I have to set the final contract here. So I leap to six diamonds, hoping that my partner has length in diamonds after the pass of two diamonds. So I'm pretty excited now when Dummy comes up to see what the hand is. But he puts down in diamonds, he puts down queen, jack, fifth, which suits my ace, king, ten very well, so no loses there. And he puts down in spades, queen, third, opposite my ace, king, jack, fifth. So that's ten tricks. And I have the ace of hearts, and I have the king, queen of clubs, so I can set up the twelve tricks, uh, trick in clubs. So that was, uh, that, was, that was good and bad, I would say. It, was, it started very badly, but it, it finished off very, very well. You're known for promoting active ethics in the game. Where do you get your moral compass? What drives you? Why is this so important to you? I've always been a very competitive person. And I think it's it comes from that. I wasn't so good at everything. I was playing football or whatever I did, or running. Or, I wasn't that good, but I really gave it my everything, whatever I did. And I think it comes from that, that you really, when you've given your everything, you think that sometimes you actually need to serve a break. When you do well, you deserve to do well. So, so it's, I think it comes a little bit from, from that, that I think the game should be fair. So you have a chance, even if you're not, the, if you give it your everything, you should have a chance. And just that feeling of accomplishing that, even if you know, starting up that you probably will finish fourth or fifth or sixth, but maybe when you have your day and you give you everything, you have a chance, maybe to become a, go to the podium. I remember I was running, running in, I think it was 800 meter. I, I, I still remember I came like, tied for third and I was so I was so happy so it's, so it's, I think it stems a little bit from that and also I think it stems from as I said when I got into the club as uh, as a, as a fourth well I started in the club a little bit older but when I played with my with my regular partner in the club from I was 14 so kind of my mentor uh, he taught me quite a lot of, of that way the way of like active ethics not take advantage not look in, in your opponent's cards. Like I know that I could see when an opponent dropped a card, my partner was just turning away just to avoid seeing that card. Like those kind of things. So it became like a natural thing, I would say, not trying to take advantage, just trying to play by the rules. And, and also, as you said, using active ethics, even if I'm looking in that card dropping on the floor, people could say, oh yeah, I was just, I didn't try to look. It was just, it was there. But for him turning away, he really, really tried not to get any kind of advantage that, that he didn't feel he deserved. So, so I think it comes from, from those kind of things. And I also think it comes a little bit from growing up in Norway. 
if you cheat in a game in Norway, it, it's frowned upon. Say, for example, in football, if you dive within the goal field, within the six, 60 meter, like, that's frowned upon. Like, you, that's not, you're not supposed to get a penalty that way. Well, I think that other places, it's looked like it's part of the game. You're supposed to try to, try to get a penalty. Because if you get a penalty, you did it kind of get a, did a good thing and the other one can do the same thing. It's not like you took an advantage that the other one couldn't take. So I think it comes a lot for that because I must say when it comes to cheating, well, in Norway, I've never experienced, I never felt there was any cheating at all. Uh, and I think that was in a way, if I had been aware earlier that what maybe something that is going on, if you go like you know, internationally, I wouldn't have had as much joy as I had from Bridge. I think growing up in Norway, and I, I really thought that Rich was a fair game. I didn't think there was much cheating or people taking advantage. Even when I started playing abroad, which I have done for, for 25 years, I, I really felt that most people played the game as I was used to it being played in Norway. So as I must say, but from 2014, 15 and until now, it's maybe I changed a bit my views about what's, uh, what's been going on and what, what the been, been seeing. And that's sad. I must say, I, I don't, because of that, I think that I don't love Bridge as much as I did in a way. If you go back 10, 20, 30 years, I always loved Bridge, but maybe not as much as I, as I used to be. So you feel disillusioned by these cheating revelations? Yeah, a bit, as you said, it was, I didn't think it was like that. It was, for me, it was like some sort of revelation in a way that it's, it, it wasn't, it wasn't supposed to be that way. And I, I didn't think it was that way. And, and when more and more like information came out, it was in many ways heartbreaking. But at the same time, you would have to do something because I think the bridge is such a great game that to, to just let it go like that, you just couldn't do that. So that was one of the reasons why I was so active, especially back in 2015. I really felt that we have to do something to, to save the game because otherwise it just become ridiculous. You were able to marshal the resources of allies all around the world to help you unravel some of these methods. Surely that is heartening for you in a way that that's heartwarming to realize that while probably many people cheat, many more people were concerned to get to the bottom of it and to expose it. Yeah, yeah. I, I must say I had a tremendous support around the world for so many People and players contacted me and supported me and sent me positive emails. I still have, I'm sorry that I haven't opened them. I still have like thousands of emails that I didn't get to open at that time because it was just too time consuming in a way. But I, I'm so happy for the support I got. I, I know that one of, they were made a movie in, in Norway called The Whistleblower. And like, I think the most whistleblowers, they just, they buy their own in a way or they just have few supporters. But I had, I thought I had so much support. That was one of the reasons why. Why I just could keep going in a way because it was, it was stressful and it took a lot of energy. And I also, my family had like difficult times because I just, I was just so tunnel. I, my, my, I just total tunnel vision. It was the only thing that mattered to me for months. So, so the support I got there, I think that was crucial. Otherwise, I'm not sure if I could go on for so long and just, just keep going. So, so I thought that was, that was great. And I remember one time afterward, I think maybe it was the fall nationals in 2015 that that was in Denver. And I went there into a playing area and, and a, a lady came up to me. I'm not sure how, how, how old she was, but she was probably in her 70s or 80s. And she just came up to me and said, thank you for saving Bridge. And I think that's something that I really remember. I thought that was so, uh, so great. And I, and I still think about that. That was for her to come up there and really, because you can think maybe, oh, it's just the top players that follow this, just the top players that are 
interest in these things, but also the, the, the normal tournament players, club players, they really want a fair game. So that's, that's something that really sticks with me, that when she coming up to me there and saying that those things, I must say, they were very, very, um, I, yeah, I was truly happy for all the support that I got, but that one I really, it, I remember like an extra one, what, yeah, that when I met her in Dapper. Why do you think that people cheat? People like to win. People like to look good. So if you, if you don't have that kind of thing stopping you saying that this is just wrong, like cheating is bad. If you don't come from a place where you just think this is bad, this is unethical in a way, I can't do this, then I can absolutely see people cheating because it's, it's it helps you. It's not like maybe if you, in some sports where you dope, you can maybe get, say, 10% or 5% added value in a way. But if you can cheat and bridge, it's, it's, it's huge. I think any decent player can become like a world-class player and every very, very good player can become the world world's number one if they cheat. So this is one of the problems with bridge that you, there's actually so much to be gained by cheating. So so unless you, have, you come from a place where you actually feel that I can't cheat because it's just wrong, then, then uh, you're in trouble. I would think for many people also just the fear of being caught would prevent them from cheating because it would be so just humiliating to then to then be caught. But I, I think some of the problems with Bridge is that so few have, have, have been caught, especially at the top level. Like so few have been caught that people have, I think that they've just felt that we will never get caught because even when you get caught, you can still prevail in a way either within the British organizations or you can even take it further to, to some sort of like some sort of legal action. In many ways, I think that especially the, the top level cheats that we've seen have felt protected by the whole setup of British. When you come to the clubs, I, I, I don't know, but I, I think that the likelihood of being caught is not so big, especially if you have that kind of mentality that cheating isn't so bad in a way and I'm willing to back it up, that's a little bit like the Lance Armstrong type that you, even if people say, oh, you, you cheat. No, I don't cheat. Then, then I'll sue you for saying that because that's the mentality. I'll do whatever it takes to win. What can we do to get more women players playing at the very highest echelons of the game? I think it has, has to do with how, how rich in a way is, is, is viewed. We put players into groups. It's women's, it's seniors, it's juniors. I think it's something where if we can all say, that, okay, that if, if you play in the field, sometimes you not, you not, won't do so well, but you have the best competition that way. You would have great competition. So to focus on the competition, trying to be as best as you can, rather than maybe focusing on the result. But if you focus on the bridge more like, I think it's better bridge in many ways in other tournaments. So I think it's a little bit where you put your focus. I think that the focus on the winning in a way Homes, the totality of rich. What would be something that people would be surprised to learn about you? <laughs> yeah, when it comes to bridge, like I try and do the same stuff to just get into the mood. I think that bridge is such a psychological game, especially when it comes to the top. I think everybody knows how to make a squeeze or to end play and stuff like that. They know most of their conventions. So for me, it's a to be in the right mood, to be focused and to be ready to play is, is a big thing. I think that's when I've failed in a way, when I haven't been as motivated as I should, when I haven't been as prepared as I should. So I really try to do the same things when I play with I always, especially for the big events, I always like try to take a shower, for example, before going to play. 
I'm not sure if I picked that up from Sia. He does the same thing. He's just much quicker than me. He could just like in five, six, seven minutes, he just comes back and he had a show. What, what, how is it possible? It's like Superman. <laughs> and I listen to music and try to really get in the mood and say, okay, this is now it's game time. I'm going to be ready. I'm going to be focused and to try to be positive also. I think that's so important when you sit down at the bridge table. If you don't have the self-confidence, you just won't play your best. You need the self-confidence to play your best. So, so I, I really try to do that when I, when I want to play it, especially for the main, but almost just playing a club game. I would still like to have that show and just go there to really film. Now it's, it's game time. I'm really going to do my best tonight and see how, how, uh, how, how well I can. Which songs do you listen to? <laughs> it depends. It depends on my, on, on the mood and it depends on what songs I like. Uh, yeah. Actually, it, it changes over the, over the championship. I, I listen to quite a bit of Adele songs. I think that's, that gets me in, in, in the right mood. I also have some Norwegian songs that I think it really uh, makes, me, makes me feel good and makes me feel in the, in the right mood to play with. Stirs the blood. <laughs> you should put out a playlist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Winning bridge songs. <laughs> What's the funniest thing that's ever happened to you while you're playing bridge? I'm not sure I thought it was that fun, but I know other people thought it was a lot of fun. So this is from the Bridge Festival that they have in Norway every year. And they have this prize that they call the Idiot Prize. So if you did something really horrendous at the table, they would then call you up and give you a prize. And of course, they, they only did this to prepare that they thought they're kind of good players that they thought, okay, this is this this will go down well. And I go down okay with them. They what they were pulling out some some random player. Some real idiot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this one, so I, I was playing with three no trumps for no bidding from the opponents. So again, three no trump, it led, I'm not that, maybe it was a heart. And so I took the heart, heart trick. And now I had eight tricks. So I thought, okay, instead of just establishing maybe the ninth trick and then letting them in to cash probably like four heart tricks, probably I should rather just give them, give them a trick and then hope maybe for a squeeze in the end or something. Then become kind of a norm, normalish play though. So I, I did this, but the guy on lead, he had seven parts and his <laughs> partner had one. So any other play than this would have made game probably with overtricks. But by playing this, I went two down. So I'm not sure I found it that funny, but the people that gave, was giving out this prize thought, thought it was really funny. So we put in the bulletin, like this is the way to play ahead. And uh, for this, you you get the, the idiot prize in this, for this bridge festival. So, well done. So some people thought it was funny, and and, and it's it was it was bridge. It's like it's it's how bridge is. Like it, it's a fascinating game, and stuff happens that you can never like really imagine. You think you do the right thing, but it just either it get just totally collapsed. And what's the strangest thing that's happened, or the strangest place that you've played bridge? Well, Norway is a very long long country. And recently they had a junior camp on an island quite far north. So they did a really good thing there. And they got together like, I think almost like 150 kids, 140 kids maybe, and 60, 70 adults that were going to this island. So, so first we had to get up was like four o'clock in the morning and then drive to the, uh, to the airport and take a flight up to a different place and then go by a ferry, like three hour ferry to get to this island with a hardly live any people, maybe like maximum 500. So that was, that, that was a bit of a strange place. And also I must say when going out there, I'm, I'm not everybody was as you know, used to the sea. 
So <laughs> there were uh, there were there were problems going there. So I, I must say I was happy that I've been uh, been a bit uh, on on the sea over the years. So so personally it went okay, but not everybody felt that way. So I think when did we get there? It, it took like probably from the start it felt like almost like thirteen, fourteen hours to get there. But but I think it was it was a great thing to do. Like it was a great junior camp. And everybody was afraid of the ferry trip back. But I think there was something with the wind that was, was much better than the other way around. So, so most people survived. Do you have a favorite convention? Not really. It's always nice when you can make, make up a convention yourself. So I have, a, I have a convention that we still have in our system, which is called the Mandarin Kitchen Splinter. And the reason for that was that we invented this in the Mandarin Kitchen in London one night. So, so that goes uh, the way that if you open two clubs and part of the response, two diamonds, and now we've been a major, so two major. So now a part of makes a splinter here, for example, two, two clubs, two diamonds, two hearts, four clubs. So how many points does that splinter have? If you haven't really agreed this, you go over that it could be, does it have to be at least three points, five points or whatever to make such a splinter? But the Mandarin kitchen splinter that we invented there, as I say, in London, in the, in the Mandarin kitchen eating, eating Chinese food one, one night, was that you, like splinters like that, had like five plus. But if you have a really weak hand and you just wanted to show a shortage over two hearts, like two clubs, two diamonds, two hearts, you could jump to three spades, which is the Mandarin kitchen splinter. And now you could ask with three neutrons, where do you have your splinter? As a really, really weak splinter, like zero to four points. And over two spades, you could jump to three no trumps saying that because that's not a bit two clubs, two diamonds, two spades. You never jump to three no trumps unless you must should have a specific meaning. And the meaning for us with the Vandalin Kitchen Splinter is that it's a shortage somewhere like zero to four points. So now it's a bit easier to know the range for part of what you don't start trying to look for a step. What about conventions that you think are a waste of time? Are there any that you warn people off? I think bridge is, is, is a thing that I think should play the conventions in a way that you like, that you feel good about. It, it's very like if you had, comes up with a convention and you have like a positive feeling, oh, no, I can use my convention. I think that's a good thing. I would say that I spent quite a bit of time with the, to learn the Gitsili convention. But I, I think for, for quite a few, I think that after it's like two clubs of one, no, but two diamonds showing eight plus from there on out. Of course, the top players know what they're doing, but I think it's just as, oh, yeah, yeah well, let's play that. It's that club that you show eight plus and now we're a game for. But I think you need to, you need really to memorize what the next bits mean, unless otherwise you still have a lot of guessing to do. But I would say that just playing this normal and like, like I used, used to do in these situations, I, I can remember that we had so many bad results playing the old way and good results with, with Silas. But I know that some people say, oh, it's the best thing we have. Like I know, for example, I think Kanita Nowosatsky, I think from the uh, the Polish players, I think it's, I, I, I've seen them say that that's like their favorite convention. What's the best bridge advice or tip that you've ever been given? Nothing really sticks out. But if I would give a tip based on experience, I think it should be be nice to partner. I think being nice to partner is, is, is a big thing because when you play bridge, you're really in a relationship with your partner. And if you've got to stick around for, for many years, like, like in a marriage, you better try and have fun, but also be nice. You see some of the players when they play for the first time, it could be just totally new partnerships and they do really, really well. And I don't think that's just coincidence. When you play in a totally new partnership, it's like almost like a first date you go to. You, you really, you really try your best to make your partner feel good and not for, 
him or her to make some mistakes. You just, yeah, play it safe in a way if you just try to help your partner. So I think that's, that's a big thing. If you can continue respecting your partner, behaving well and, and being nice to partner, if you can make your partner play her best game, that's very helpful also for your, your results. And the same thing goes for your partner. If your partner can help you to play your best game, that's a big thing. So I think those things are much more important than say one convention or like do this or do that. Because that happens on an email on every hand. And if you can have a good relationship with your, with your partner, that's a huge, huge edge. Boya, thank you so much for joining us today. It was terrific. Thanks. Really wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. And that's the show. Thank you to Boya Brogeland. This program is produced by Catherine Harris. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message at www.speakpipe.com slash sorrypartnerpodcast. The link is also in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice or we'll call the director. Until next week, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Boya says, have fun and be nice to partner. Oh, and don't cheat. (laughs) Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Bye.